Welcome to the Behind the Lids podcast. My name is Mandy Adams, and I have the privilege of leading the Behind the Lids Healing Collective here in Costa Mesa, California. Our podcast is an opportunity to share the wisdom of facilitators who hold space and bring healing at our studio, as well as experts and influencers we believe you should know about. Before we join our conversation for today, we'd love for you to hear about an upcoming event at Behind the Lids. We have some exciting news to share with you. Behind the Lids is now offering online classes, and we just announced the first four taught by Mana Dabokar, psychic medium, life coach, and former therapist. If you're curious about communicating with animals, discovering and developing your eight clairs, your intuitive senses, overcoming self-doubt and unleashing inner confidence, or learning how to interpret your dreams, head on over to behindthelids.com online. That's behindthelids.com slash online and learn more about our new online classes. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Behind the Lids podcast. I'm your host, David Trotter, and I'm honored to have you join me today for my conversation with Stacy Pendleton. Stacy is an incredible friend and facilitator here at Behind the Lids in Southern California. She's a sound and energy healer, as well as an intuitive counselor who's been in practice since 2004, and she's been teaching voice for over 25 years. Having studied extensively with shamans from South India, West Africa, and the United States, she's developed a healing modality fusing Sanskrit chanting, devotional singing, and intuitive toning with Tibetan and crystal singing bowls, bells, buffalo drums, shamanic rattles, hands-on healing, visualization, guided meditation, and aromatherapy. On today's episode, Stacy shares how music and spirituality have been a part of her life from a very young age how sound can not only calm our bodies, but heal our traumas. And most importantly, we talk about how singing can be a powerful way to help us regain our voice. All right, let's jump into my conversation with Stacy Pendleton. Stacy, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to have you. Thanks. It's great to be here. So one of the things that I have loved hearing about your life is this powerful interweaving of music and spirituality. So when did you become interested in both? I don't know if they happened at the same time or different times. So take us back in your life and give us a little little journey. Sure. I don't know how far back you want to go, but pretty much since birth. um, (laughs) Yeah. When I I started humming and singing and talking at five months. So (laughs) that was just music was a part of my existence and my self-expression from as long as I learned how to express. Um, and then, you know, that, so I, is, that a, is that a part of the story that your family tells? Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you were so young. You were, I mean, I assume that's yeah. part of the, your life story. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not framed on the wall or enshrined or anything, but certainly, uh, certainly it's been discussed that I was a little unusual. <laughs> So you started singing at that age. And then how did that, um, did you start taking lessons? Did you start performing? Walk us through I, it. Okay. So I, I started taking lessons at age 10 um, and took lessons for, for many years and studied, you know, studied music in school and all of that and explored every genre, but sung classical music, you know, a lot, um, along with singing in rock bands and singing in jazz and blues bands and writing my own music and 
all these different things. And But poetry actually started first. I started writing poetry when I was eight. And then that um, became a vehicle for, for storytelling. And then setting that poetry to music sort of started the the journey of, of singing songs and telling stories through song. Um, and then in terms of spirituality, um, that's been just kind of a cornerstone of my life since I was really, really young. And it didn't really follow the map that was laid before me by my you know, predecessors or my family um, with that. But I remember, I think I might've even told you, because we kind of had a pre-interview in your car at one point on the way to Not Scary Farm <laughs> a couple of months back, but um, that I was like four or five years old and I was lying on my back on the like maple leaves in my front yard and looking up at the sky. And even though I, my family was like half-assed Presbyterian, that was kind of their deal. Um, I had heard the word reincarnation somewhere and I was really little. And so I'm lying on the back, looking up at the sky and I don't know what the word means, but I have this intuitive knowing of what it means. And I see this carnation, a literal flower opening the outer petals dying and falling away. And from the center of the carnation, a new one and on and on and on and on. So this, this kind of awareness from, from the time I was really little was, was just a, a part of me and, and music and spirituality are intrinsically linked for me. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm hearing just to kind of take myself back in your story, five months, you started humming and singing and talking and then began at age eight, you started having, you had this vision of a carnation opening over and over again. That was like four or five years old. And then the poetry started coming in at eight. Okay. Four or five years old. My goodness. And then you started having these words flowing at age eight and then started taking lessons at age 10 for singing. So did you have an intuitive sense even then that music and spirituality were linked for you? Or was it just, you're a kid and this is just part of your life and it's, you know, it just is what it is? I will say that I was maybe a little older when I was consciously aware of that. Um, But I will say I wasn't, I didn't um, grow up in the most like touchy feely, yeah, free to be you and me, express yourself type of household. And so, but writing and singing, um, singing and storytelling, those were places in which it was acceptable for me to amplify my voice mm, okay. and to, and to tell stories, even if they weren't always my own, it still felt, um, affirming to tell stories. And I also liked, even from the time I was really little, um, before I was taking lessons when I was just in a couple little school choirs and stuff, um, seeing the impact that you could, you know, watching someone watching you sing and you could see their face change and you could see their body language relax and you could see them smile or you could see them be moved. And I had this desire to help people in some way using that. That happened really young. Mm. And and the 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 route of professional 
music and singing and bands and so forth. Did you go down that road? Did, was that attractive to you? Yeah, I, I did. I, you know, I, um, started kind of going down the road of classical voice because I had studied opera for a long time and was traveling with an amazingly talented woman who I, um, really pestered into being my teacher. Um, and she was singing as Königin der Nacht in Saubersot, so the Queen of the Night in the opera, The Magic Flute. And she was at the Royal Brussels Opera. I was traveling with her. I was helping her take care of her child at the time. And she was telling me what the road looked like in terms of um, what it's like to be an opera singer, what it's like to be a touring classical performer. She did not paint the most attractive picture. <laughs> what was the, what was the, what was the picture like? What what was not attractive to you? Well, okay, I I loved. I mean, her voice was just angelic. I mean, she didn't describe it in this way, but she was like receiving and transmitting spiritual energy through her voice. It was alchemical, this woman's voice. Um, and, and so I felt that, and that I was attracted to that appealed to me, but she would say, she said to me, she's like, this industry is brutal. People will smile in your face and then stab you in the back two seconds later. It's really cutthroat. She said, it's even, it's way more cutthroat than popular music. Popular music is like Disneyland compared to the world of classical music, which I was really kind of surprised by. And she said, you can do this if you want to do this. You have the skill to do this. And she told me that, you know, Italian immersion school in Siena to go to and the Mozarteum Conservatory in Salzburg. And I do this and I do that. And then I enter the young, um, the new young artists competition at the Met when I'm in my mid twenties, it was like this really clear trajectory that one is supposed to travel. And I was like, no, I, I I would rather, I would rather tell my own stories. I would rather find other ways of, of helping people and expressing through music. Um, I just have never been a cookie cutter person that wanted to travel the road that somebody else laid out before me. So that caused me to shift gears more into like, um, music that's kind of more on the intersection of rock and folk and singer songwriter type stuff. And I did, I was in a lot of bands, a lot of acoustic duos and did a lot of that type of music. And, um, it just kind of became exhausting because it wasn't, I realized that where I really thrive is in creating and holding space for other people. I don't necessarily I had this desire to perform for years and then it just went away. Mm. I just got fatigued and I wanted to, um, I wanted to really dive into the world of, of music as medicine, music as an offering to the divine music as a means of self healing and healing others. That just is, was and is far more appealing to me. It just, it took me a while to get there because People tell you if you have a particular voice or particular songwriting talent or this or that or the other, 
this is the road you go on, you know? And I, and I accepted it for a while and then I just kind of let it fall away. Hmm. So you talk about having this extensive training in classical music from some obviously very well-regarded individuals. And then you then shifted at some point to begin to get training from shamans, which is a whole different path, right? Yeah. I mean, but what's interesting is that there was, there was a place, there was an overlap in the timeline with that. I started going to a Hindu temple when I was 18. Um, I would be visiting from college. It was down here in Orange County and I would be visiting um, from college and and that and kind of going back and forth and um, and then became more involved in my early 20s when I moved back down to Southern California after school. Um, and so the the shamanism that I've studied the most extensively is is Indian shamanism, like from India. Um, and there was a teacher there at the at the temple. He didn't live there, but he was there on regularly on the, like the monthly pujas, the monthly worship. He did the fire ceremonies and fire offerings and and um so he started teaching like a, a hatha yoga class and so i was taking yoga from him for several years and then a few years after that he started offering classes learning these elaborate like slokas like mantras and um puja or worship ritualistic worship of divine mother in the form of kali in the form of lakshmi um and he lived at this space where like orthodox hinduism and tantric shamanism intersected um because his dad his father was um a brahmin priest and his um aunt was this like old school shaman from a matri- like a total matriarchal lineage and so he kind of danced between those two realms. And I, I studied with him for a number of years, um, very extensively. Um, so, and that, and it was in the, and, and, and again, sound was a gateway or, or a gap that kind of was, was bridged there because at the temple, we were doing a lot of like call and response kirtan singing, where it's it's a direct offering. It's during the worship of Divine Mother that you're singing, and you're singing as an offering. Um, and then learning kind of the mantras that my teacher taught me, it really illustrates and amplifies kind of the alchemical transformation that that sound can facilitate for a very specific purpose or for a much wider purpose. Mm -hmm. Specifically talk to us about sound and how it does help us not just calm our bodies, but also um, heal us and help transform, you know, traumatic experiences that we've had. Help us understand that. What's happening with sound? (laughs) Yeah, there's so much happening. Um, I'll start here. It used to be in, you know, in, in ancient culture, tra- cultural traditions that were more community oriented, less individualistic and more communal, that, that everyone was encouraged to sing. 
everyone was encouraged in, you know, in circles <laughs> to sing. And, and, it, and, and somewhere in Western culture and in modern culture, it, it's, that's gotten lost. Hmm. It, it's become, music has become kind of this more performative thing. And that some people have a quote unquote good voice and some people have a quote unquote bad voice and the ones with the good voices should sing and the ones with the bad voices should not. And when I started teaching singing, I was still in college. And so I've been on this road of teaching voice for like a quarter of a century now. And I remember whenever I would I had a new teacher um, and when I was younger, I had to audition for them. They wanted to make sure I was already good before they would agree to take me on as a student. Now, I made my way through those auditions, but I certainly thought about all the kids who didn't mm-hmm. and all the kids who's, it's like an emotional thing to think about all the kids who are kind of thrown away because their voice for some reason was deemed not good enough. And I harbor the deep belief and hold this deep truth that every voice has medicine. Some voices are like sweet, like honey, you know, and carry a more obvious beauty. Some voices are more kind of smoky or husky, like, like you've spent, like you've been spending time around a ceremonial fire. That's, I want to drop an F-bomb, but I won't. That's freaking beautiful. It's beautiful. Every single one, every single one is beautiful. And we all have the right to sing, to express. We all have the right to tell our stories through songs. And so I made a choice when I started teaching that bring me the people who have been rejected by the other voice teachers, bring me the people who, um, have had the trauma so that we can help clear it for them so that they can feel a clear path of self-expression. I've seen even with little kids, you know, or younger kids that I've taught, I've seen their body language and countenance and the way they communicate change in like a matter of months where they, you know, first came in really like looking down and not making much eye contact and not speaking much and seeming even sometimes like they weren't even present. But then within a couple of months, suddenly they're skipping up the driveway (laughs) to the lesson. They're so excited to tell me about their week and all the cool things that happened. And they're singing on the way up the driveway and they're singing on the way down the driveway because they're they're in a space where they know that they have infinite do-overs and they know that their stories are welcome. And so it's, it's about so much more than singing. It really is. Mm. I know one of the things that you do is you actually, you work with people individually and in groups on gaining their voice through yeah. singing. Yeah. So I know for me, I'm in that category of, let's be quiet when uh, singing comes around, right? Mm. <laughs> sure. A lot of people but, are. <laughs> and yet, ironically, 
um, because of my long history of being a pastor and in the church, I've, mm-hmm. I've frankly probably sang most more than most people because I yeah. sing tons and tons and tons of songs every Sunday um, as as part of my my past. Um, and yet, there's still a, a nervousness, like ah, I just, but I don't want somebody to, I don't want somebody to hear me singing, though. That would not mm-hmm. feel comfortable. So, how do you utilize singing as a tool, not just for people who want to get better at singing, but to actually gain voice in their life? Excuse me. It's there's there's a lot that can be done in service of that. Um, one of the things is just a, the basic concept I, I mentioned a couple of minutes ago that that every voice carries medicine and that um, and to kind of start alleviating the tension around the self-expression. It's another it's another level of self-acceptance when you allow yourself to be vulnerable to that degree where you are sharing, a story through song where you're sharing a melody. Um, and so I, I like to start, if I'm working with a group, especially, um, I like to start with like simple, see the seed sounds for the different chakras, for the different energy centers and just chanting sustained notes. And Can you we give chant- us an example, give us an example of that. Sure. It's just like the, the seed sounds starting at the root, like, and moving up the energy centers through to the crown. Mm-hmm. Um, and you start chanting together communally like it used to be. And, you know, and then singing maybe simple, a simple healing song or a simple medicine song with the drum and everyone singing together communally first and then and would this be in sanskrit by the way would this be sanskrit or english all over the map okay all over the map so the seed sounds are all sanskrit um Mm -hmm. but then there are um you know dene medicine songs dene navajo medicine songs um healing songs through kind of the celtic like ancient celtic tradition um healing songs I've written, you know, all, all over the map in, in, in several different languages, but typically I'll start in English working with a group, um, so that people can feel a little more confident. Um, and we go around the circle and we, you know, first we sing as a community and people, and I kind of open the door for people to share their stories. And I have people go around the circle and share their stories of, of why they're there, what prompted them to come, whether it was someone telling them they couldn't sing, whether it was that expression wasn't safe in their family, whatever their story might be. Um, I invite them to bring that story into the circle um, because our, our songs, our voices, they tell the story of who we are. And so we, we heal exponentially when we give ourselves permission to tell the story of who we are, whether we're speaking it or whether we're singing it. When we're singing it, it's a little more amplified because we can feel it reverberating through our entire bodies. And then after that kind of space is open and people can feel the trust and the love and the support flowing in the circle, then maybe we go and have people sing a line on their own. And we go around the circle that way and kind of progressively 
it's still a group conversation. It's still a communal supportive situation. And it's also a situation in which people are encouraged to share their own story. Help me, help me understand um, why this is so passionate. Like, why are you so passionate about this in terms of helping people gain their voice? Um, did you feel like you, you didn't have voice? I know part of your story, you talked about that, you know, music and poetry was the way for you. Is that, is that the primary driver for you? Yeah. I, and I think if you, I mean, it's not the primary driver, but driver, but it was definitely a catalyst was definitely a catalyst. Um, and I think if you spoke with any healing facilitator or intuitive, um, there would be some iteration of that, of a seed of that story in their story. Um, because when we've done extensive healing within our own selves, we are compelled to pay it forward. And so that's kind of our, that's kind of why I think where a lot of healing journeys begin. So yeah, absolutely. When I was growing up, um, it was a very much, and I, and I say this also knowing that my parents did the best they could. Sure. Um, it was very much an environment in which I witnessed people who were living in their own shame a lot. And so a lot of things were shame-based and a lot of things were based on how others would perceive us. Mm. You know, there was a certain, and I, I, I'm feeling intuitively like, like there's some understanding with you and your upbringing with the church and, and, you know, a certain, maintaining a sense of propriety, these kinds sure, of things, sure. respectability. And so there was a much more, much more emphasis placed on compliance being polite, being pleasant, being obedient than there was on being yourself, mm -hmm. you know, than there was on expressing yourself. You were meant to express yourself in ways that were acceptable in, in things that you're good at, that will put a good name on the family that will make us be perceived well, because, because, you got to know, David, it's how you appear to others that matters, not who you truly are. That's right. <laughs> it's that's that, right. It's that, it was that kind of a BS narrative, which again, I'm so grateful. It was the best school for me to learn who I really am, mm. being confronted with everything I'm not all the time. Mm. It took a while to get there. I lived in the shame for a while, but once I emerged from it, um, life got really, really beautiful. Mm -hmm. So often, if we grow up in that environment, if we haven't found a way out of it, we seem to replicate that in either <sighs> yes. work, you know, work situations or relationships that we get into. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. So all of a sudden I'm in more of that situation and unknowingly going, how did I get, I, I don't like this. How did I end up here again? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if, if there is someone listening who, you know, is trying to find his or her voice and they're trying to figure this out and go, yeah, I just feel locked down. I don't feel like I can express myself or actually, you know what, before I ask that, hmm. maybe somebody doesn't even know that they don't have voice. What would be some clues that you would give 
where they would go, oh, oh, wow, I didn't even know I could have voice in that area. Like, what are some clues that we might not have voice in our life? Uh, difficulty making decisions. Just a plain old not knowing what you want, perhaps because when you were growing up or perhaps because in some long-term relationship or marriage that you've been in, your will was subverted by the other person and you allowed that. Um, those are huge. <laughs> those are huge clues or huge key factors um, in, in not having voice. It's just a lack of clarity around what you want. Also, making decisions based upon how they'll be received or perceived by others um, making decisions in your life and spending a lot of your time um, completing tasks and acts of service out of a sense of obligation rather than a sense of love, doing these things even when you're drained, doing these things even when they're at the expense of your own health, happiness, and or well-being. These are all huge indicators that a person hasn't found voice in their life. So now I'm recognizing, okay, wow, I am having challenges with some of these areas. I don't feel like I have voice. Where do I even start? Like, how do I, I feel so nervous trying to even just send something back at a restaurant because they screwed it up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. That, that conditioning is deep. I get it. Yeah. So what, what are some first steps that people might take? I feel like meditation is one of the kind of elemental first steps. And I know not everyone wants to sit ramrod straight in lotus posture on a hardwood floor, and it doesn't have to look like that. It can be, it can be walking meditation. It can be, um, if, if listeners haven't read any Thich Nhat Hanh, I highly encourage it. Um, is very much uh, was very much a practitioner of engaged Buddhism and bringing mindfulness into every activity. Um, so that kind of awareness, where where we really sit with ourselves and really connect with where is joy flowing in my life? Where is what fortifies me? What brings, what amplifies my energy? What drains my energy? Who amplifies my energy? Who drains my energy? All of these different things. And, and even practicing saying no and starting with small things and building up to bigger things when you don't want to do something, just practicing saying no and getting comfortable with what your no's are and what your yeses are is, is huge. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I even help people that I coach say is, you know, I'm not sure. Let me think about that just to mm -hmm. get space because sometimes even that no is like, uh, I can't tell them. No, they I've sure, but just the, uh, you know, I'm not sure. Let me get back to you on that. Give right. space to then really get in touch with well, what is it that I need or what I want in my life. Um, Absolutely. And, then, and then sometimes even responding via text or, or email or appropriate, you know, whatever appropriate mechanism so that it uh, doesn't feel so overwhelming. Um, yeah. What part of, so you mentioned meditation, you mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh's work and beginning to say no, really thinking about what are your needs? What are your desires? What are your wants? Um, when in the process of doing that, people come up against some pretty strong emotions of, 
but I just can't, but I just mm-hmm. can't, I just can't say that I can't do that. I can't make that decision. Yeah. That's something that's obviously much deeper, something that's going on there that's um, entrained beliefs, um, patterns of behavior, tra- traumatic experiences. How do people, how would you suggest that they begin to address some of those things? There are, there are several different ways that have been effective for me. And I know other ways are effective for other people. Um, but some of the ways that I find have been extremely helpful for myself and for kind of the community that I work with and within. Um, definitely therapy. Therapy from, you know, and if and if a spiritual path is is inherent, you know, to to your life, um, then I definitely would recommend a therapist who is has a spiritual focus, a spiritual center. They're they're out there. They are, um, and then also sometimes it's sometimes certain things like in terms of talk, talk therapy and processing, that's hugely important. And then there are also just those, just that stagnant energy that lives in our body that exists, that we've adopted as like a permanent resident, but it's energy that can move, you know, these, these traumas, these, this anxiety, these stresses that can be so crippling. Um, this fear of disappointing other people by being who we truly are can be so paralyzing. Um, and sometimes some things can't be project uh, processed with the logical mind. They have to be, it's stagnant energy that needs movement. And so then I would recommend go to a healer, go to someone whose energy you trust and allow them to assist you in moving that energy. And it's a collaboration. It's not just someone lies down on a table and passively receives. It's a, it's a, it's an agreement. It's a commitment that the divine energy working through both of you, um, that the benevolent energy working through both of you is, is coming together in service of moving some of the stagnant energy. And you'll find that people start breathing more deeply. People start slowly but surely making more empowered decisions about their own lives when they allow themselves to go to that place that, you know, is also beyond the logical mind and just trapped energy that lives in their cells that they give permission to, to begin to find movement. And that, and those heavy blocks start to feel lighter they start to feel malleable they start to go from opaque to translucent and they and they can clear and they can lift and they can move mm-hmm. and then the great thing is when we're in those situations where we feel like we haven't had voice before and then we kind of exercise our voice i know for me i walk away from those going look at that wow that's so <laughs> good look at the result that i got i didn't have to do that thing i didn't want to do mm-hmm. i didn't have to feel weird i could just be myself and it felt comfortable and then I get to celebrate, you know, like, yes, this. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. And, and I'll share, I, I was a hardcore people pleaser. Oh my gosh. Like saying no for most of my life was so difficult for me. And, you know, in the past decade or so, I've experienced a shift, particularly in the past handful of years, but it's ever evolving. 
Um, and I remember a few years ago, like a, a specific situation where I took joy in saying no. It was one of my, it was a client, a client that I love. And she wanted me to like facilitate some like Zoom, um, like karaoke night or something. And I was just like, I didn't want to do it. And, and I said, you know what? That sounds like a really fun thing for you to put together. And she's like, no, no, I think you should do it. And da, 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 da. And I said, no, I just don't want to. (laughs) Giggled when I was, I was, we were messaging and I giggled when I messaged it back to her. And she like, she, she texted me back the surprise face emoji and then the laughing, crying. (laughs) I love it. That's great. And it was like, it was a good lesson for her too, because she was really working on boundaries. And so for her to see that you know what you really can't just say no and go on with your day you know it's it, it is an empowering thing no ex, ex, ex oh my goodness no explanation needed right right yeah right you don't have to go into a whole diatribe or monologue about why you don't want to do something all the time <laughs> you know right. you can just right. allow your no to be Clear, but I, I also circling back to what you said about working with clients and saying, you know, giving them kind of that, that key or allowing them to buy some time to get clear about what they really want. With a, let me get back to you, I, you know, what I'm not sure right now, or what, or whatever, you know, whatever that, mm-hmm. whatever that statement may be. That that's also, that that's also key, and that's also, I think those are are really helpful training wheels on the road to being yes. able to like cheerfully, gleefully know what your no's and yeses are (laughs) without qualifying them. Yeah. Love that. Stacey, um, you lead several things over the course of the month at Behind the Lids in Costa Mesa. And so one is gather around the fire. Mm -hmm. uh, And then also the second is the Sanskrit sound bath. How are those two events um, unique and different? Let's see. With the gather around the fire, um, it's, I've combined um, sound healing and oracle readings. So we begin by opening up our intuition, by accessing our intuition through healing sound, through setting intentions. And, um, and I kind of, you know, take the energetic pulse of the room and whatever the medicine is that wants to come through, through sound, whether it's through the bowl, whether it's through the drum, whether it's through the, my voice or some combination therein, um, that that medicine comes through and and it enables everyone to kind of relax the logical mind and allow their intuition to step forward so that they can then be active participants in the process of um, receiving this information. And then everybody receives their own intuitive reading. Um, and there's the lovely collective group dynamic that it's always divine arrangement who shows up because there are pretty much every time there are people in the group that are having parallel experiences and they receive medicine from the messages that they're receiving and also from the messages that other people are receiving. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes, and I find this really valuable too, people share their own um, insights about messages that other people have received. And that's one of the most beautiful parts of it um, too, that I love. And they're more, 
it's more, they're more soul readings, they're more life path, life purpose type readings than they are. You're going to marry a wealthy doctor. <laughs> January 17th. You know, it's not, it's not that type of, it's not that type of reading. Um, but people do, but timelines do come through and more specific information does come through sometimes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, I have been a part of that experience and it is absolutely incredible. The, um, how dead on your Oracle readings are, have been with, with me and that I see in the faces of others as they are experiencing that in the room. And I'd love to have you come back on the show, you know, in a, in a bit and, and we'll do a whole conversation about Oracle readings and how you got into that. That would be very fascinating. I'd love um, that. So then also the Sanskrit sound bath, how, how, mm -hmm. what's unique about that? Well, um, the elements, I think the fact that, and I'll, 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 try to be as brief as possible. <laughs> but since, since I started with chanting, since I started with just the voice and nothing else in the room, um, before I ever had a bowl or a rattle or a drum, um, that is the primary instrument of, of healing is just like the, ve the vessel of the voice. And so um, through and again, this is where too, like I, t I spoke about it briefly with the gather around the fire experience, but with an, in an, like a, the context of a 90 minute sound bath, being it, steeped in the energy of the people of the room for that period of time and really feeling what guidance comes through for them in the form of sound. Sometimes work, sometimes lyrics come through spontaneously in English. Sometimes it's, you know, intuitive toning and sounds and melodies. And, and sometimes I'm prompted to, um, chant a particular, um, mantra or sing a particular song in a particular language, but it's, it's very much based upon the collective energy of the room and, and the medicine that's needed at the time and allowing that and allowing myself and, and whatever instruments of healing I'm playing to be a vehicle for that beginning with the voice. And I also take people through um, guided meditation so that they can begin also giving permission to stagnant energy within them, whether it's in their bodies or in their beliefs or in their spirits to, to find movement. Mm -hmm. And both of those events happen on a monthly basis at Behind the Lids. So yes. if you are listening and interested in an upcoming date, you can go to behindthelids.com slash calendar and of course find those. And then Stacy, what's the best way for people to connect with you if they're interested in Oracle readings individually with you or um, singing lessons or any type of work with you individually, or uh, maybe even, I know you work with families or groups of friends come I and, do. and, and sit yeah. with you. So yeah, what's yeah, the best absolutely. way for them to reach out with you? Um, they can go to my website, stacypendleton.com. There's no E in my name, <laughs> S-T-A-C-Y, pendleton.com. And then also through social media um, on Facebook, just under my name, Stacy Pendleton, and on Instagram, Stacy underscore Pendleton. And it can make you track of all of the different events going on. But if they'd like a deeper explanation of the different offerings, that the website's the best place to go. Awesome. And we'll put all those links in the show notes as well. So if you're listening on your phone, you can scroll up and see those links right there. Stacy, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your wisdom and your life's journey. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, David. It's been a pleasure. 
We hope you enjoyed the conversation today, and we invite you to share this episode with someone who would enjoy it as well. Take a screenshot, text it to them, and tell them to check out BehindTheLidsPodcast.com. Also, we encourage you to rate and review the show on the podcast platform where you are listening. We'll see you next time, Behind the Lids.